I'm Mike Derning, one of the teaching team here. Today we're breaking off of our study through the book of Matthew. In fact, turn to Luke 19, if you will. Luke 19 will be in Luke and John today. This is an important week in the development of... Uh... <laughs> not that slide. Let's not use that one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this week we'll be talking about Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just the week before his crucifixion. That's what's the kind of thing that's important this week and what follows. That's usually called Palm Sunday, by the way. That's the Sunday we're going to write out because they threw palms at Jesus' feet as he entered. And just the night before the crucifixion was the Lord's Supper, on Friday we talk about the crucifixion itself, where Jesus died for us. On what we call Good Friday, for our Lakeside family, that's going to be occurring as we gather with our sister church, Fellowship Chapel, this year. Uh, 7 p.m., 14 mile between Shaner and Van Dyke, somewhere in there. And next Sunday we'll talk about the resurrection, on what we call Easter. So today, Palm Sunday. What happened that day in the life of Jesus? What did it mean to the people of that time? And what does it mean to us? Uh, it was, in truth, a celebration when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day. And I hope to capture a bit of that spirit in today's sermon. Speaking of celebrate, I heard a good story. A young monk arrives at the monastery, and he's given the task of manually copying all the old canons of the religious law of their order. Not the scriptures, but their own laws there. He notices, however, that all the monks are copying from copies, not from the original manuscript. So the new monk goes to the old abbot to question this, pointing out that if uh, you know, someone made an error in the first copy, it would never be picked up. In fact, that error would be continued in all the subsequent copies. The head monk says, well, we've been copying from the copies for centuries, but you make a good point, my son. So he goes down into the dark caves underneath the monastery where the original manuscripts are held in the archives in a locked vault that hasn't been opened for hundreds of years. And hours go by, nobody sees the old abbot. So the young monk goes down to check and make sure he's okay, and he sees him banging his head against the wall and wailing. He, we missed the R! We missed the R! We missed the R! And his forehead's all bloody and bruised, and he's weeping uncontrollably. And the young, mask, young monk asks the old abbot, oh, Father, what's wrong? He says, with a choking voice, the old abbot replies, The word was celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> anyway, we celebrate Jesus today. We celebrate Jesus today as the crowds did on Palm Sunday all those years ago. You'll notice that we've distributed, we were going to distribute, by the way, palm fronds. I really thought that we were going to get there. Something happened, there was a miscommunication. Uh, I've seen churches do all levels of observance for Palm Sunday. For most evangelical churches that are less formal, like ours, that some will even barely discuss it, to churches where they have a guy dressed as Jesus ride in on an actual donkey and reenact it. Of course, there are certain cleanliness concerns for having a donkey in the auditorium, so no. Uh, well, you know, if you had palm fronds, you could wave them around during the service. But, you know, the important part of not having them is we're very concerned because, you know, someone might lay them on the ground and spell out the word Jesus, and we're against palm reading. We're Christians. <laughs> That's one of two existing Palm Sunday jokes. The other one's even worse. <laughs> All right. Our big idea today is this. Worship and celebration of Jesus is appropriate, good for us, and changes us. Before we read, let me tell you another story. Uh, at a previous church, we used to have Sunday night gatherings at our house. Uh, we'd have maybe 50 people show up sometimes. In preparation for one Sunday, my wife prepared a special cake of a type she normally would not for one of the regulars, Michelle. Uh, it was for her birthday. And we all gathered, and, and the cake came out, but Michelle never came. She was homesick that day. So we ate the cake. 
We did send a piece of her cake home with her husband, which hopefully made it to her. Uh, I can't recall if we sang happy birthday that night, but we did have a part of the celebration. We ate the cake. But imagine how weird it would have been had we done that every year. If every year we baked a cake, we sang happy birthday to someone who didn't show up, always hoping that she would show up. That's somewhat like the environment that happens as Jesus rides in this morning, as we will see, because the events in Luke 19 are around the time of Passover. It's a major Jewish holiday, and the people of Israel at that time would flock to Jerusalem, swelling its population from what's estimated about 40,000 people at that time to almost 250,000 for a few days. Again, no room in the inn seems to be a theme of Jesus' life that happens again, again, again in the end to him. Everybody had to stay in tents and booths or outlying villages and come back into Jerusalem each day. And they would celebrate and sing as they rode up the hills into Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is high ground, but it's got valleys beneath it. And once they got there, they would celebrate and sing as others arrived too. But the one they were waiting for, the one they were singing about, never showed year after year until this day, which we call Palm Sunday. Into this party that day rode Jesus, the actual object of the singing. Let's read the story now, beginning at Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Would you ever try to borrow a car with that? Never mind. Anyway, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, flip over to John's gospel, chapter 12. We're going to read the, from there, and we'll be in John 12 for most of the rest of the sermon. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So it's an amazing day for Jesus. Let me set it up. The events in this story follow very shortly on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been buried for four days, all of which happened in a village just a couple miles out of Jerusalem, all right? If there was ever a time when Jesus was going to be recognized as the Messiah, this was it. The audience is primed to accept him. Now, this is Passover, and the Jewish people had a way of doing this that was so culturally cool. We're really informal here in America. We stand and sing the national anthem before a game, and that's about as unifying a thing as happens in America. And it's not great that much here unifying because half of us get mad at the few people who don't do it, right? This culture was much more unified. 
uh, they had this list of songs that they sung as they went up the hill into Jerusalem, okay? Uh, they were called Songs of Ascent. And these were actually recorded for, for us in the book of Psalms, written down, all right? And, and there were times when the people in Jerusalem would sing out one line and the people coming into Jerusalem would respond with the next line. And some of these were songs about the Messiah coming. So here comes this parade, this procession of people coming into Jerusalem, and Jesus is on a donkey instead of on foot. So he's raised up above the crowd and highly visible, and the praises begin to spread. If you pull together all four accounts of the triumphal entry, you can actually tell where they were in the process of these songs as Jesus rode up and the people stopped singing and started shouting with rejoicing. Here it is from Psalm 118. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks. For you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, that's the palm fronds, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Some of you who have been in the scriptures for a long time may note how many references to Jesus dying for us are hidden in here. It's kind of eerie. So people are singing this. In fact, they're doing it responsively. Let's go ahead and do it, okay? You people on this side, you're going to be the Jerusalem people, the city dwellers, okay? Can you do that? And you people on this side, you're going to be the people who are coming up to Jerusalem, the travelers, all right? And everybody... Wave your imaginary palm fronds, okay? Are you coordinated enough to do that and talk at the same time? I thought you could, yeah. Actually, Jacob's doing great back there, fantastic. So, all right, so, all right, travelers, are you ready? All right, that's you guys over here, right? Okay, good. Which side is this? City dwellers. What side is this? Okay, here we go, travelers. Oh, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Okay, now we have to sing it in an old Hebrew tune. You can see it. In the middle of the song, some people see Jesus. They've seen him. They've heard him preach. They've heard about this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead nearby. Statistically, many of them knew eyewitnesses to this astounding event. And they start breaking out from the song and start shouting words, Oh, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a big day. Jesus shows up for the triumphal entry like a conquering liberator king to the cheers of the crowd, but he's not a conqueror. He's gentle. After his entry, he ascends up not to a palace, but to his temple. They do not recognize the kind of liberator he is. He's not there to save them from Roman rule. He's there to save them from their sins. It partially fulfills the prophecy of Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king someday when he returns to rule the world. All right? It gives Jesus a bit of a taste of the big day after the second coming when he will return to Jerusalem as king of the world and reign on the throne of David. And as we will see in days ahead, Good Friday, that is all not to be at this time. 
As unified as their culture was, there are just too many agendas in the leadership that will keep any of the men, uh, keep any of them from letting one man rise to rule at this time. And the pressures of those will lead to the cross. Of course, that has to be. But for just a bit, Jesus is adored this day by the crowds with something approaching the glory that he deserved from them. I want to spend a bit of time this morning talking about two striking facts about this story, and then we'll talk about what it means to us, some thoughts or cautions for this day from this story. So two striking facts. Number one, Jesus received adoration. Jesus is God. He's worthy of worship, but he came to earth in a servant's role, mostly covert, somewhat surreptitious. He spends a lot of time trying to cover up his own miracles until shortly before this point. When people seek to lift him up, he says things like, my hour hasn't come yet. When he does some healing, he tells the healed person, don't tell anyone, right? He gives parables and admits that they are as much to teach truth to those who are insiders as they are to obscure truth from the outsiders who are rejecting him. For about three years of public ministry, Jesus has largely avoided the spotlight. He's dodged hero status and let it build slowly. But now he allows this crowd to adore him. When the Pharisees want him to scold the crowd for shouting praises to Jesus, he corrects the Pharisees and declares that the crowd is correct to praise him, that in fact nature itself would praise him if the people were silent. He was okay with being adored, worshipped even. In fact, I'll go a step further. Point number two, Jesus set this up. He was approaching Jerusalem very publicly. A few days before, just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, he performs what is arguably his most striking miracle prior to his resurrection. He raises Lazarus from the dead in front of a large crowd of people after he's been dead for four days. Now he sends his disciples into town to borrow a donkey on which he will ride, which fulfills an Old Testament promise, Zechariah 9.9. Jesus is engineering this prophetic fulfillment. Now, from a standpoint of strict theology, that's perfectly natural. You know, God controls everything anyway. If, as we believe, Jesus is God, ultimately, God can't help doing this. Prophecy occurs because he knows what's going to happen, because he created the universe in which things would play out that way. It happens because God happened it, if you will. But from a human perspective, this may sound kind of ugly to us, right? You know, if I engineer circumstances that make me look like a great leader, maybe I'm trying to be a politician, If I engineer circumstances that make me a star, probably I'm shooting to be in Hollywood or New York City someday, have my name on a sidewalk on a star there, you know? But if I engineer circumstances that make me an object of worship that makes me look like God, that's suspicious. After all, if I'm not God, and I in fact am not, pretending to be God makes me a cult leader, a con artist. And you might argue, if I am God, then engineering circumstances in which I will be worshipped raises a question. If I truly am God, why would it matter to me? If you're so great, why would it matter to you that people acknowledge it? In short, why would it matter to Jesus that people worship him, adore him, acknowledge him as their ultimate king and Messiah? Shouldn't he be, you know, bigger than that? This is a huge stumbling block to a lot of modern people. And I want to transition right into our application section to answer it, because why Jesus sets this up represents something that matters to us. So here's the first thing of what matters to us here. Jesus is worthy of our worship. It's become stylish in some groups to question whether God is worth it. The argument, and I see it all over these days, especially on the internet, goes something like this. I'm kind of suspicious of God's backstory, you know? What kind of God needs his followers to worship him, they say? Isn't that kind of petty? I mean, you're already almighty, and needing people to acknowledge it is kind of the opposite of humility. Why does God get to be prideful and jealous when he commands us not to be? Or here's how the headline on one website read that I saw recently. Why does the biblical God need our worship? Is he some sort of egomaniac 
was David Hume, that's a philosopher, right, when he said, God has a restless appetite for applause? And they have a point. And they'd be right if God were great, kind of like James, or LeBron James is great with basketball, right? But it's not. God being great is actually beyond our human conception. The concept in Scripture is worship, which at its root is about something being worthy. When we say we are uh, worshiping, we're ascribing positive traits to him. Goodness, greatness, holiness, kindness, mercy, wisdom. We're assigning those to God. We're admitting he has those things, those traits, and we're admiring him for them. When we do this, we're not doing this because God needs us to do this. Here's Psalm 50 where God comments on old Israel's sacrificial system. He says this, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is our mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In short, God is saying to these people who might have thought that these sacrifices actually were something that God needed, I don't need you. You need me. And that's the gist of it. If, in fact, as it seems, Jesus set up this sequence of events for people to acknowledge him as their Messiah King, it was not because Jesus being worshipped would make him more of Son of God, you know? It's because in worshipping him, we become more of what we were intended to be. It's about having the correct orientation to reality. Let me illustrate Take a U.S. Navy warship. We'll use the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz, aging giant. It's getting ready to be retired in the near future. Uh, it's a giant with over 5,000 sailors and airmen on it. The current commanding officer is Captain, Captain Craig Sokola, unless he got relieved since I made that slide. Anyway, the first group of sailors who, uh, let's imagine two groups of sailors if we can. A first group who knows that they're sailors and airmen aboard Nimitz. Uh, all right. And then a second group that doesn't realize. Two groups of people, all right? The first group is sailors who knew they were in the Navy, knew they were under the command and authority of Captain Sokola, and were working to keep the ship operating as they should. The second group, people who don't know that they're sailors, people who were agnostic about the existence of a captain, or if they were aware of him, weren't sure that they were connected, that was connected to their lives in any meaningful way. These sailors are enjoying their freedom to wander about the ship, interact, converse, randomly do stuff. They've noticed that when they do certain things, certain effects are caused, uh, you know, but, uh, and the captain out of his good grace is going to allow them to eat in the ship's mess, regardless of which group they're in. Of course, this ship is in growing disrepair and confusion. In its current state, the ship can be steered into obstacles by a crewman who doesn't understand. The engines could be shut down. A fighter jet could be pushed over the side by drunken sailors. It could happen. All right? Whatever. What's ultimately good for these wayward sailors and the ship is for them to learn that they're sailors, that the captain commands them, etc. It's appropriate for the captain to demand good order and discipline, not because he's mean or prideful, but because he's truly the captain. And everyone's experience is made better, and their relation, if they understand that they're real sailors and have the proper relationship upward to his command and also horizontally among each other. Now, there are limits to that example, right? Of course, God's rule is far different from military command. But I present it because in a similar way, God is the center of the universe. It's not just about discipline or control. In fact, it's barely about that. It's about recognizing the way the universe really is, who's at the center, and what it means for us. It's about recognizing that I am made to be in relation to a God who loves me and cares for me. 
and who'll bring about what is best for me and anyone else who will listen eventually. And yes, we're not perfect sailors. And yes, we're surrounded by drunken sailors who don't know they are sailors, so this world is a mess. But everybody's lives would be better if we understood a bit more about him and followed. From that perspective, it is good. It is right. It is care for us when God calls on us to worship him and follow. And it's good for us to do it. It's hard to imagine anything more controversial for our era than this thing, right? Will we be God-centered or man-centered? More to the point, will we be God-centered or, you know, me-centered, us-centered? Every major battle in our culture that is concerning the Christians starts with that question, right? And for the world, it's no big deal. We'd be surprised if unbelievers were God-centered. So the fact that the culture is changing as more and more of the populace becomes me-centered is not a particular surprise. In fact, I'm not sure how one goes about winning a battle for the culture with a divide like that in central focus. The answer ultimately to most of the problems is people need Jesus. But my concern for us today in this room is for believers. Are we God-centered or focused on ourselves? Which way is it? We lost something when we lost anchoring our identity in God. I'm a created being made by a God who loves me and who calls me to follow him. A God who loves me so much that he would die for me and then Jesus did exactly that. This identity anchors me in something eternal, unchanging, unmovable. It becomes life-changing. So don't blame Jesus for creating his own party that day. He wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it for the partygoers and for us. Application number two, it is good for us to acknowledge that he's worthy. Let me illustrate. You know that I'm not into sports much, right? I'm not dismissive of them. I see their value. I'm just not that interested. But imagine, if you will, that I thought I was the measure, that I was pretty decent in basketball, in spite of the fact that I have no form, no practice whatsoever. And quite honestly, until this video we're about to show, I don't think I'd picked up a basketball in like 20 years. And I wasn't that great when I used to pick up a basketball. It might go something like this. I'm Mike, and this is Ryan. We're here to play a game of horse today. Uh, we're going to let Ryan lead off by telling us, what's your qualifications to participate in a game of horse against me? <laughs> so I've been playing basketball since the fourth grade, and right now I play on my JV team. All right, so presumably he has okay. I am an experienced adult. I'm pretty good with physics and figuring out trajectories and things and math. Uh, I haven't touched a basketball in 20 years, other than the one that he's holding just a few minutes before this video. And but I think I might do okay. We'll see. <laughs> uh, we tried to invite LeBron James. Uh, for some reason, he did not respond to the emails. I don't understand why. Perhaps he doesn't know who I am. Uh, here we go. Okay, of course. <laughs> not surprisingly to a bunch of you, uh, Ryan was the victor. Uh, I want to remind everybody I recently had a knee injury and maybe that contributed. You need to say it. Say... 
I will never be a good basketball player until I learn things like form, until I practice, until I be more like you in basketball. All right. As you can see, it was actually bad for my basketball skills, if skills is the right word, to think that I'm good enough. It was only good when I admit there's someone above me in skills that I should learn from and emulate. Now, I'm not suggesting we automatically worship those who are above us at any skill set, far from it. I'm suggesting we only get better when we see our flaws, our need, right? Seeing Jesus at the center of the universe as the best, as my model, as my example, it changes me, or at least it opens the door to changing me. So here's my first challenge question. In what ways am I worshiping God with my life? And in what ways am I practically worshiping myself? Everywhere we look in our culture, there is self-worship. And it demonstrates itself in the choices we make. I am the measure. What I feel, what I think, what I long for is right because I'm me and nobody can tell me right or wrong for me. But you'll never be the person God intended you to be, that God made you to be, until you yield to him as your king as the one who is worthy to make your life's choices for you. You may seek, you may enjoy, but you will by no means find fulfillment of all you could have been without him. So what happened that day? Did everyone join the parade and worship Jesus? No. Flip back to John 12. You should already be there if you kept your Bibles open or follow along on the screen because John gives a great deal of detail about how people reacted to Jesus and his desire for worship. That day, there were many important people watching the triumphal entry, and they had agendas that were different from Jesus. You know, there's a certain kind of person who at a profound moment where everybody should be in awe says, what's my angle? How can I turn this to my advantage? They don't get the worship principle or the message. They were there that day, and here's my third application point. Beware of plans that don't reflect worship and celebration of Jesus. First, the Pharisees, John 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's John 12, 9 through 11. It's one of the funniest stories in scripture, I think. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees say, let's kill him, so no one will know about Jesus. And Jesus could just raise him from the dead again. And then the Pharisees would have killed him again. And Jesus could have raised him from the dead again, and then Lazarus wakes up in the middle of the night, and there's a guy standing over, over him with a knife, says, oh, no, not again. You know? <laughs> so we have this group just before the triumphal entry who'd rather plot to kill Lazarus, who Jesus had just raised from the dead, than have people follow Jesus. They wanted to cover up the truth. What a bunch of narcissists, right? But clearly, they desired to maintain control, and their vision for Israel was so great that they couldn't even consider, wow, a guy dead four days, was resurrected? Maybe Jesus is who he says. That was verses 9 through 11. If you write after that, you have the story of the triumphal entry. And at the end, just after the triumphal entry, here's the Pharisee reaction. So Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Agendas get in the way of worship. When I have an agenda of my own that is more important to me than God's agenda for me, it throws everything off kilter in my life. In fact, in this case, they end up utterly opposing what Jesus is doing. Skip down a bit, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Condemning words here, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So here, here are these leaders who believe, but secretly, worship of God is not as important to them as being respected by others. Could that be said of you? 
In this case, their own agenda causes them not to necessarily oppose Jesus, but remain silent. So here's my warning for you. Beware of plans that don't reflect worship and celebration of Jesus. Beware of agendas that don't glorify him. The agenda can be sinful pleasure. I want this pleasure more than I want God. It can be pride. I want to be on top of things, not have someone else be in control of my life. It can be control. I want to run my life. It can be plans for the future that are at odds with his plans for us. It can be a lot of things. True worship puts God at the center, not us. And our plans should always be his plans for us. Challenge question. What plans do I have that are in direct conflict with Jesus' plans for me? Whose kingdom are you advancing? Yours or his? Whose pleasure do you seek? Whose glory are you trying to build up? I know this is hard to accept. A life lived for self is what we're supposed to be doing, according to our world. But a life lived for self misses what the Creator intended by a mile. Ask yourself, whose plans are you going to follow? This expresses itself in a lot of different ways. Job and career choices, dating choices, marriage choices, investment choices. And I'm not just talking about money where you put your time, your energy, your money, whatever. How you spend your day, whether you help others readily. Here's my fourth fourth point on what this means to us. Part of our celebration of Jesus is orienting our lives around him and his ways. Also in John 12, we find this, same day after the triumphal entry. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Some Greeks approached Jesus. They're not frat boys, you know, Kai Delta, or whatever. You know, they're literally people from Greece, or perhaps Jewish families who adopted Greek ways after Alexander the Great conquered Israel sometime before. They existed in Israel, but they were kind of outsiders in some ways, and we have no idea what their agenda was. Maybe they were going to offer to fight for Jesus and put him in power. Maybe they hoped that if they aligned with Jesus, that he would, uh, you know, be more supportive of them or something. Uh, that he would, uh, be, they would be elevated in his kingdom someday. Jesus answers in verse 23, and whatever their agenda was, he rejects it. He says this, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. So Jesus then reveals his agenda, and it wasn't what everyone would have thought from the triumphal entry. He's there to die. His agenda is sacrifice. There's so much to unpack here, but let me sum up. Jesus declares that his glorification will not occur through military triumph or political power, but through self-sacrifice. We have to live the same way. We celebrate and worship him by doing things his way, living life with his values, Living lives that are broken and poured out in sacrifice for others and him. It was just after the events of this week in John 13, 1, that we read this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus died for us, giving his life that we might live. Jesus could have claimed the throne of Israel at that time, He could have done everything the Israelites were hoping for at that time in a Messiah. Could have overthrown Rome. If you're skeptical, you're not paying attention to Jesus' miracles and thinking through what they imply. Instead, Jesus' focus was not on deliverance from the oppression of a foreign power, but deliverance of his people and us from sin and its destructive consequences in our lives. He died to pay the price for our sins on the cross that forgiveness can be offered freely to all of us. This is a gift. It has to be believed and accepted. 
You'll never be fully all God intends for you until you receive that gift and the power he wants to inject into your life through it. Can we take a moment and bow our heads? Because I want to give you an opportunity. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've never accepted his gift for you, I want to give you an opportunity to pray quietly in your seat about this. Tell them that you know you're a sinner. Admit to him that you need him. Tell him you accept his gift of eternal life through the price he paid on the cross. Invite him as king of your life to reign over you. Thanks. We can all look up now. If that was something you prayed, I would love to hear from you about it today. Let's all wrap up, shall we? The people who came to see Jesus ride into Jerusalem that day came with a variety of motives. There were, in fact, uh, people who didn't want to receive what he had to offer. You know, they didn't want, uh, there were big people who were trying to find a way to take advantage of this wave of excitement that was about Jesus. Pharisees wanting to help keep him under their thumb and protect the crowd from what they considered as wild ideas. Apparently some Greeks who had some other agenda. There were not a few that day who probably were thinking in terms of Jesus as a conquering hero, overthrowing the Romans and freeing their land. There were probably even some Roman soldiers sent to keep order thinking, you know, what's with these people? They're crazy. But also in the crowd were some sincere Jesus followers, people who'd been healed, people who'd heard his words and seen that they were the words of life, people who'd been forgiven, People who knew someone raised from the dead and they were there to join the parade without reservation, without their own agenda, they were there to worship and follow. If there's anything I could challenge you to do today, it would be this. Live your life like you're in a parade for Jesus. Be jubilant, be excited, follow Jesus, cheer him, be ready to do as he says. If Palm Sunday preaches anything to us today, it's about joining this 2,000-year-old parade sincerely, passionately, excited to follow Jesus all of our days. It's life-changing. By which I mean that if you can live there, in that parade, in your heart, it influences your life in many, many ways. Your downtimes can be moderated by the knowledge that Jesus is there to carry you through. Your times of temptation can be overcome by your passionate devotion to continue in the parade and follow him with your whole heart. Your drab and boring times with others can, be, can explode with meaning as you see the opportunities you have sent, to him, sent by him to you so that you can enrich their lives, help them see him clearly too. Your everyday job could have meaning as the place he has planted you for that time in your life, filled with chances to make a difference in this world. So here's our final challenge question. Will you join the parade and follow Jesus wholeheartedly? Or will you stand aside and pursue your own purposes? Are you like the Pharisees on the outskirts? You know, well, hold on now. Let's not get carried away, you know. Like some sullen teen, you know, determined not to be seen enjoying something in front of, the, in front of his friends, you know. I don't understand the coldness of people who claim to be Christians who aren't part of the parade about Jesus. I love the passion of people who are in the parade. The young adult I talked to here in this very room a few months ago who firmly and passionately told me that what he wanted for his life was whatever God wants. The kid I heard about in a Sunday school class at another church when some of the kids around him said, who cares, this is boring. He shouted, don't say that, I care. The couple who glowingly shared how their marriage was saved by listening to Jesus. The old saint from the chapel family who shared with me about how he found Jesus decades ago who still teared up when he told the story. Recognizing it, 
The parade for Jesus is where we belong. He is worthy of that. And we better get in the parade and be a part of it with our whole hearts and our lives. That's right, that is deserved by Jesus and that is good for us. Amen. Our big idea today has been worship and celebration of Jesus is appropriate, good for us, and changes us. I've been urging you to join the parade and follow Jesus with all of your heart. Real modern day parades, I'm usually ambivalent about. I can't conceive of getting up early on a holiday to go stand in the cold and wait for Santa to arrive on the, on the streets of the D. If that's you, we'll enjoy it, but it's not for me. But kids, oh kids, they want it. They see Santa ride in the town and begin the Christmas season. That's a big deal for kids. Nearly one million people, mainly families with kids, attended this year in Detroit. The one in New York drew about 3.5 million. Kids are enthusiastic about seeing Santa and they want to be there for the big parade. Now, I can't think of anything I less want to do in a fine evangelical church than draw comparisons or contrasts between Santa and Jesus, especially if there's kids in the room. But that kind of excitement they have ought to be with us at all times for Jesus. The same thing that makes those kids gleeful to get up in the a.m. early and stand in the cold waiting should be ours for every day of our lives as believers. The Savior is here. And I stand in awe and thankfulness with my eyes glued on him, knowing just a fraction of what he has done is going to do, only dimly comprehending what he will bring. I'm in the parade. I worship. And I hope you are too. And if your passion for Christ is growing dim, you need to ask yourself whether you've formed some plans or some loyalties or some goals that are self-driven rather than driven by your devotion to him. And maybe spend some time thinking about what he has done for you. Let's pray. Help us to understand ourselves, Lord. To understand that what we think is best, what we think is good, what we think is going to get us to where our dreams will be fulfilled is all smoke, it's all an illusion. We need to be guided by what you have for us. We need to get in the parade and follow you with our whole hearts and listen wholly to what you have for us and obey. We need to worship. So help that to be us. Help it to transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing to